Blog Talk Radio. Here on Tricky Toll Radio, and then we start with Blessing John MacArthur leaving the world to reach the world. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never connected to Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called None Other Discovering the God of the Bible. This detailed look at God's character can strengthen your trust in the Lord and deepen your love for Him. Request your free book by writing to none other at gty.org. That's none other at gty.org. The offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2019. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. We're going to start in Colossians this morning with just a kind of a 
an introductory look at the opening few verses of this third chapter. So let me read it to you. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Now what I want to focus on in this opening part of the third chapter is the very clear command to keep seeking the things above, verse 1, and verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And as we go through this uh, chapter in months ahead, we will learn a, a whole lot about what that means in a very specific way. But for this morning, at least, we'll, we'll have some kind of an introduction. And I want to use a lot of Scripture this morning because the Scripture is the revelation of God, and on its own it bears all the power of heaven. So I'm going to have you have your Bible handy so that you can look at the Scriptures I draw to your attention. But let me begin by just kind of reinforcing the title, Leaving the World to Reach the World. We all get the mission of the church in the world. We're to reach the world with the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're to go and we're to bring the gospel and then we're to teach them to observe everything the Lord has commanded them, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. We're here for the purpose of calling to salvation from a human viewpoint, those whom God will call from His divine sovereign will. So we have been left in the world as the church for the purposes of evangelism. We're here for that sole purpose, to bring the gospel to those whom the Father has chosen so that they can hear it and believe and be saved and the Lord can gather His people in. We are the instrument. He does this through believers, through the church. Now, I think we all understand that. We all understand the Great Commission. We all get it. At the end of the Gospels, uh, the Lord says, Now go into all the world, make disciples, go preach the Gospel. In the book of Acts, He says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be witnesses unto Me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And that's exactly what has happened. So we all get the Great Commission. We, we understand that. Let's just say we understand the mission. We also, I think, understand, for the most part, the message. We, we understand the message is the gospel, that Christ came into the world as the incarnate Son of God, that He lived a sinless life after having been born of a virgin, that um, He died a substitutionary death. He rose literally physically from the grave. Uh, he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father on high, and He intercedes for us. We understand that. We understand the history of our Lord's incarnation. We understand the purpose of it. It is to bring salvation. He came to give His life for His people. He came to be the sacrifice that would satisfy God. So we get the gospel message that Christ lived, died, rose again for our salvation. But what the church seems to be having trouble with is the method. The method. The church has been taken captive by a kind of pragmatism that it seems it cannot shake. And I think that pragmatism is dealt with in the simple statements that I just pointed out to you in verses 1 and 2. Keep seeking the things above and set your mind on things above. Rather than doing that, rather than setting its mind on heaven, rather than seeking what is above, believers today and even church leaders today seem to be preoccupied 
with seeking things that are below. The actual purpose seems to be to best assess the world around us and do the most we can to make some kind of superficial alterations in our economics or in our social structure or in our cultural definitions. The church seems to be earthbound, and of course that would be a satanic strategy, wouldn't it? If we're called to heavenly things, then Satan would want to make sure we got trapped in earthly things, and that has been the death of churches throughout church history. But it seems to be that even today, a kind of evangelical pragmatism where we, we understand the mission, we even understand the message, but we really are confused about the method. Bible-claiming, Bible-believing churches I'm talking about are the ones that are confused and have no reason to be confused if they just kept reading the Bible they affirm. There's a popular and widespread uh, and fully embraced, I think, notion that to reach the world we have to become like the world. That's basically the bottom line. We've got to become like the world. That is the common perspective of evangelical pragmatism. Pragmatism basically says we do what works, we do what attracts people, we give people what they want, we talk the way they like to talk, we play the way they like to play, we, we act the way they like to act, we like the things that they like. And, and the more common ground we can find with the world, the more effectively we build a bridge to them to give them the gospel. That's essentially what pragmatism is. It seems to work. It draws a crowd. They like it. This has to be right. That's what pragmatism says. So the bottom line is the church needs to become as much like the world as possible. We need to give the unbelievers as much of what they want as possible. Uh, we need to adopt their, their cultural style, their fashion, their music, their entertainment, their media, their jargon, as much as possible. We need to, uh, to accept their cultural expectations for things like comfort, anonymity, self-fulfillment, acceptance, tolerance, affirmation, and you can fill out the list yourself. And we need to sort of uh, remove all the obstacles that offend them, things like sin and righteousness and judgment and wrath and eternal punishment things that convict, things that indict, things that condemn. And we need to embrace as many social ideologies as possible. We, we need to really be open to feminism. We need to be open to homosexuality, same-sex marriage, um, sex outside of marriage, social justice, victimization, intersectionality, critical theory, social politics, because these are all the things that everybody's caught up in these are the things that they are advocating now, and unless we want to be isolated, we need to jump on the advocacy bandwagon. We need to essentially accept as many worldly norms as we can possibly accept. That is typical of the modern method to supposedly fulfill the Great Commission. I wrote a book against this some years ago called Ashamed of the Gospel, if you want a more thorough treatment of that kind of thinking. You can get a copy of the book, Ashamed of the Gospel. It's come out in, I think, three different iterations. The subtitle is When the Church Becomes Like the World. When the Church Becomes Like the World. So this is nothing new. When pragmatism first reared its ugly head, I was addressing it even then, and it's just as pertinent as 
as if it were just arriving on the scene even today. Now, is that the right strategy? Is that the way it ought to be? Are we supposed to find as many things as possible that are exactly what unconverted people want in a given culture and make sure we give them all of those and that is what builds the bridge? Well, in reality, that is the opposite of what the Bible says. That is absolutely opposite what God has called us to do by way of methodology. According to God's Word, we have to leave the world to reach the world. We have to leave the world to reach the world. This is basic. Listen to the words of our Lord in John 8, 23. He says to the Jewish leaders, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. You will never find in the entire ministry of our Lord in all of his interactions as recorded in the four Gospels, any time where he accommodated the world in any way, any time where he occupied himself with trying to set worldly disorder back into order or worldly confusion back into sanity, that you will not find a time when he wanted to deal with worldly economics or societal injustices or inequities. That belonged to the people who were the world. He said, I am not of this world. In fact, later in John 18, 36, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. In other words, if my kingdom was of this world, we would engage the world. We would engage the world and we would fight within the framework of the world like so many others are fighting. We would be a part of the melee of human philosophies and ideologies colliding in the world. But my kingdom's not of this world. So we don't fight worldly battles. He never engaged in politics, cultural reform, economic reform. He never tried to fix the world. There was no pragmatism in his ministry or that of the apostles. There is no human philosophy in his evangelism or that of the apostles. And neither should there be in ours. I think we've lost sight of the fact that the strategy is exactly opposite what seems to be popular today. The strategy is to leave the world, to separate from the world, to abandon the world, to reach the world. In other words, to make the gospel believable, we have to be different from the world. We have to be other than the world. I, I want to show you that in several portions of Scripture. I think they'll all be familiar to you, but I, I want you to hear them again. Romans 12. Romans 12, very beloved portion of Scripture. Just the opening couple of verses. After 11 chapters of the glories of the gospel, Paul brings in a therefore based upon the glories of the gospel, which he calls the mercies of God. Here's what you're to do. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay. You're a believer. You've become transformed by the gospel. You have one responsibility. That is to see your entire life presenting yourself 
as a living sacrifice to God. That's a heavenly act. That's because you're not of this world. You're from above. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. And so the initial responsibility you have as a believer is to give your life up to God in a way that is a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your initial act of spiritual service of worship. So you start your worship by offering yourself to God. In other words, this is a whole giving of oneself to divine purposes. This transcends the world. And on the back side of that, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to offer your life as a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable to Him? What does that mean? It means that you do not conform to the world, but rather are transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind is renewed by the Word of God. And all you live for is to demonstrate what the will of God is. What does it mean then to live a risen life? What does it mean to leave the world? It means to live entirely within the framework of divine commands. Entirely within the framework of what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. We live to fulfill the will of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, again, a, a familiar passage. A similar emphasis is made here. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So we just said from Romans 12 that basically we are to offer our entire lives to God as an acceptable offering, a holy offering, and that is our act of worship. And that means that we are transformed and not conformed to the world, transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we live in the realm of the commands of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And as we do that, obviously, we recognize this is consistent with who we are, for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people." This is consistent with the fact that God now takes up residence in us, right? God lives in us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, really, the triune God lives within us. We are the temple of God, so we are people of heaven. We are heavenly people. We are concerned to offer our lives as sacrifices to God and God alone. It's a solo sacrifice. He is the only Lord. We give Him everything. This means that we are a temple unto Him. We are sacred in the total sense because God dwells in us. Then verse 17 gives the implications of that taken from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. What does that mean? Come out from their midst and be separate and do not touch what is unclean 
and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If you're a child of God, you have come out from the world. You have been separated from the world. This is a separation. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This is a doxology coming out of the heart of the Apostle Paul over the fact that God and the Lord Jesus Christ have rescued us from this present evil age. We are separated from it. We are rescued from it. In Philippians chapter 2, just to continue to see how consistent Scripture is on this, verse 15 says, you're to prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Now, have you noticed all this language? Uh, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. That's our uh, spiritual act of worship. We offer holy living sacrifices to Him. This means that because we are sacrifices to Him, we are separated from the world. We touch not the unclean thing. We come out uh, from the world. We leave the world. And here you have the same thing exactly in verse 15. You are to be blameless and innocent children of God. It picks up the same identification that we're children of God. We are to live above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. So we are living in the middle of this crooked and perverse generation and we appear as lights in the world. We don't blur into the darkness we appear as lights in the world. The point of that, I think, is pretty obvious. A believer is to be in stark contrast to the world. Stark contrast to the world. As light is starkly contrasted to darkness. And then one other scripture for the moment. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We are to be manifestly the children of God. It is to be obvious to everyone that we belong to God, that we are otherworldly, that we are not a part of this world. Now, this is challenging because we're still in this world. We're still in this world. But while we are in this world, we are not to be of this world. And, of course, the Lord Jesus is the example of that. He was in this perverse and corrupt world, to borrow Paul's words, and yet it never affected him. He was the light shining in the darkness. And listen to what he said in John 15:18 and 19. If the world hates you, 
you know that it's hated me before it hated you. Just something to remind the pragmatist about. Christ himself came into the world to preach the gospel, and he was hated. He was hated by the mass of people. He came to his own, his own received him not. He was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not. He was rejected, he was rejected aggressively, he was rejected hatefully and hostily, so that they actually executed him. So I think that is basically the undoing of any pragmatic approach to evangelism because our Lord Himself, who was the shining light in the darkness, the, the light that was the purest light that ever walked on earth, and He was killed by the very world He came to preach to. We shouldn't expect friendship with the world. In fact, James says friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. You can't get there. So the idea that you can find a method that makes unbelievers happy with you is folly. Even our Lord did not do that. And if He's the model for evangelism, and He certainly is, He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Even our Lord didn't have a strategy that basically won people over on some emotional or sentimental basis. Even our Lord had a strategy that didn't minimize sin. In fact, it maximized sin. He said more about hell than anybody else. So he says, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. You're not of the world, I choose you out of the world. So we live above the world. We live out of the world. We have to leave the world to reach the world, not become more and more and more like the world. Over in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and verse 15, he said in his prayer to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He doesn't take us out of the world. He leaves us here. He prays that the Father would protect us from the evil one but He leaves us in the world. This is where we have to be to do the work that the church is called to do. We have to be in the world, but we also have to be heavenly. Heavenly. We live at a different level altogether. And this can be seen, I think, most beautifully in the person of Christ. He is the model he is the model of an evangelist. He's the model of someone seeking the lost. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He was so emotionally torn, even as God incarnate, He was so emotionally torn that He wept passionately over the lostness of Israel. And had there been a better strategy, you can be sure He would have used it. If somehow the hostility could have been mitigated by some marketing strategy or some clever approach, our Lord would have used it. But keep in mind, first of all, who would be saved was already predetermined before the foundation of the world. And all He came to do was to preach the truth of the gospel so that those who were chosen by the Father could hear it and believe. But what makes the gospel believable is the transformed life. I've said this repeatedly through the years that you, you can preach the gospel to people all you want, but unless they see a transformed life by the power of the gospel, what's the attraction? That's why all the garbage in the church, all the sin, 
immorality at the leadership level in Christianity is so disastrous because it basically turns all the claims of Christianity into hypocrisy and lies. You cannot tell me that Christ changes lives, makes you holy when you were before unholy, if what I see is just more unholiness like everybody else. If religious people are just charlatans and frauds and phonies, and maybe in some cases the, the worst that men can be because of their hypocrisy and because they misuse the name of God in Christ, then there's nothing in the gospel that attracts me. That's why Jesus said, look, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are light shining in the world, but only when they can see your good works and when it's manifestly obvious that things that are happening in your life are not normal. When they see that there's a triumph over sin, there's a triumph over iniquity, transgression. When they see that there's a life full of gratitude and joy love and virtue and humility, they can see the transformation. Pragmatism does nothing but make the gospel harder to communicate because it's all mixed up with what the world loves. This has to be separated. Separated to such a degree that even the one who was the greatest evangelist who ever walked was hated by the very people he came to reach. I think sometimes we lose our perspective in the world in which we live. We, we lose our objectivity about the lostness of people. It happens once in a while that you have the opportunity maybe to go to some other country, maybe a third world country. I've done that a lot through, through the years whether it's a third world country or a first world country in South America or Europe, when you get into some of these countries that you're not a part of, there's a sort of objectivity that settles in and you see the lostness maybe a little more clearly. Certainly that's been my experience going to places like India, other very, very destitute places, and you see the massive lostness of humanity and because it's a culture you're not a part of, there's a clarity with which you see that. But in the culture that you are a part of, you lose that clarity because you get caught up in living partly in the heavenlies and partly on earth. Your emotions, your attitudes, your thoughts, your interests are partly kingdom interests and partly worldly interests. And so there's not that clear, stark contrast that you have if you were standing, for example, in Calcutta on the Howley Bridge with a million beggars. And you would see it in a different way, but they're no more lost than the people in your neighborhood or the people anywhere else in the world. But we get softened up by the culture in which we live, and you can't get any softer than to try to make the church look like the culture. Paul said, come out from among them and be separate. What does that mean? It means that you're above the things of this earth. You don't live in this kingdom. You live in the kingdom of heaven. You have been literally blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. So that's why, back to our text, 
In Colossians 3, Paul starts by saying, therefore, the first two chapters he's talked about salvation. The first two chapters he talked about Christ and what he did for us. I read the second chapter for you. He does the same thing in the first chapter. So because you have been redeemed, because you have been transformed, because you have been forgiven, because Christ paid the debt for your sins, therefore, since instead of if, because this is not hypothetical, this is factual, since you have been raised up with Christ, you have died with him, you have risen with him. He has been saying that in the opening two chapters. You are in Christ. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You're part of the household of God. Since this is true, that you died and were raised up with Christ, here's the command. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. That is a general command. That is the first sweeping command in response to gospel privilege. We have entered into a new kingdom. We're not part of this world. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son. Listen to the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 as he speaks about this. Again, these are familiar verses, but look at Ephesians 2.18. Through Christ, the one who, through his cross, saved us, as he says in the previous verses, through Christ we, have, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So we have access to heaven. That's constant access. We come boldly before the throne of grace for help in time of need, we have access to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit by the work of the Son. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You were strangers and aliens to God, strangers and aliens, foreigners to the kingdom of heaven. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You belong to the heavenly family. You are part of the household of God. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of God's family, children of God. You're part of the building of the church, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is magnificent language. You're part of God's family. You have access to the Father. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You are part of the church, the edifice of the church that's being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone is Christ. You are being built collectively into a holy temple for the Lord to dwell in. You are not only an individual temple. You are collectively the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. This is amazing language. We are heavenly beings. Listen, the fact of your salvation was a greater change than you'll experience at your death. At your death, you have subtraction. You lose your fallen flesh. That's subtraction when you die. But at salvation, you were given a new and eternal nature. That's forever. 
That was the transformation of all transformations. Look at Philippians chapter 3, just a couple more of these important scriptures. Verse 19, talking about unbelievers whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and that defines them in general, whose glory is in their shame. In other words, they find their satisfaction in shame. They worship their own appetite, their own desires. They're headed for destruction. But notice the last indictment, who set their minds on earthly things. That's how people who are on the way to destruction live. People whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of His power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. I can't resist taking you back to Second Corinthians for just a moment, and then I'll give you one more. Second Corinthians 4. 16, Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Rather than try to mitigate suffering, Paul went in and preached the gospel and took the suffering. And he said the suffering actually, instead of being a negative, was a positive because it was earning for him an eternal weight of glory. So if you try to mitigate the suffering, if you try to mitigate the hostility, if you try to find a pathway for non-believers to like you rather than to face the realities, uh, you're not only missing the point of getting them the truth, but you're forfeiting even an eternal reward. How interesting is that? Paul says, look, I'll take the momentary light affliction that comes because I preach the truth of the gospel because... In its place will come an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Then he says this, here's what motivates me. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. We live in a realm where we see the invisible. We see spiritual realities. Everything that is temporal is going to burn up. All of it. Anything that somebody does to adjust life in the world is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. What good does that do when it's all going down? We don't look at the world the way other people look at the world because we're citizens of the kingdom. I can't resist this one more portion of Scripture. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Did you get that? We are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are the light. We live in the light. We are the people of the light. We shine as lights in the darkness. Look at it again. What titles? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Now you are aliens and strangers to the world, where once you were aliens and strangers to God. But as aliens and strangers to the world, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the nations. End of verse 12. Because of your good deeds, as they observe them, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. You want somebody to come to the end of their life and face God and glorify God? You want that to happen in someone's life? Then your good deeds will lay the foundation for that. Your good deeds. It's not about your strategy. It's about your holiness that makes the gospel believable. So we live in the heavenlies. Everything we love and everything we're part of is in heaven. Our Father is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our home is there. Our citizenship is there. Our reward is there. It's all there. All the virtues we love are heavenly virtues. All the truths we love are heavenly truths. All the enterprises that we want to engage in are heavenly enterprises. This is a life that is consumed with focusing on what is heavenly, what is eternal. And that means it's focused on Christ, who is the embodiment of all of that. We want to draw down Christ's likeness. We want to be like Him. So we gaze at His glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and are changed into His image from one level of glory to the next. As we look heavenward and we see the glory of Christ seated at the right hand of God, as Paul says in Colossians 3, as we see Him sitting on His throne and we contemplate His glory, our vision of Christ is transformed into our own hearts so that we become more like Him, more like Christ. So what we want to draw down out of Christ is His truth and His virtue, His understanding, His knowledge, so that, as we read in chapter 2, we can have the full understanding of the mystery that is Christ, the full understanding of what is His and what is ours in Him. In Him we are complete. In Him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and we are in Him. In that chapter I read, chapter 2, it says, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, five or six times. So this heavenly focus is a focus on Christ. And we want, we want to do the will of God. That's a heavenward life. And we want to do what God wills and only what God wills. We want to fulfill His purpose in His way. We want to be preoccupied with Christ. We want to draw down all the virtues that belong to Christ. This is how we want to be. Go down to verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Be like the Lord. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That's living a heavenly life. 
drawing down all the truth and all the virtue from heaven into your life. So he says in verse 1, keep seeking. This is a lifelong pursuit. Keep seeking. What does it mean to keep seeking? It's explained in verse 2. It's a mental exercise. It's a mental process. Keep seeking by setting your minds on the things above, not on things of the earth. Again, I just say Christians get sucked into so many earthly things. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? What preoccupies you? What irritates you? What exhilarates you? Where are your joys and where are your disappointments located? In this world or in the heavenly realm? What moves your heart? What occupies your emotions? Do you live in this world in the, in the manner that the songwriter put when he wrote, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green, something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine, since I know as now I know I am His and He is mine. Do you live so united with Christ that the whole world takes on the, the manifestation of the glory of God and the beauty of its own creation? Can you see past the corruption to the beauty of God in the world? Be constantly seeking that. And it's a mental thing. Look, there were false teachers in Corinth who wanted to tell the Corinthians that they had elevated to a higher level of knowledge, that they had some secret knowledge. Later they were known as Gnostics. The people with the secret knowledge, the people with the esoteric elevated insight. Our Lord is not offering just another form of asceticism here, just another form of mysticism when He says, set your affections on things above. He's not talking about pie in the sky, living in some foggy notion of contemplation. He's saying, if you want to live in the heavenlies, get your mind set on things that belong to the heavenlies and pursue those all your life long. Things above. Seek what Christ seeks for you. Whatever you ask in His name, He'll give it to you that the Father may be glorified. John 14. All the resources, all the riches, all the supply of heaven, all the virtues and all the truth in heaven is available to you. If you seek, the Lord will give. Live in the heavenlies. Don't get caught up in the earth. And when people see heavenly lives, the gospel becomes believable. You must not only seek heaven, but you must think heaven. And all that is heaven's is revealed on the pages of Scripture. Where is your mind? What are you seeking? What occupies your life? I hope it's heaven. And I hope that heavenly occupation shows up in heavenly living. That's how we leave the world to reach the world. Father, we thank you for this wonderful portion of Scripture. We thank you that our life is hidden with Christ in God, that even though we're here on this earth, since we have died with Him and risen with Him and are in Him, our life is hidden with Him in Your presence. We are already in the heavenlies. We are already in Christ. 
Christ in us. We are citizens of glory. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we shall see Christ, we'll be like Him. Father, thank You for not just saving us, not just putting us into the death of Christ so that we died to sin, but placing us in the resurrection of Christ so that we now live in the heavenlies. All the virtue and all the truth of heaven occupies our minds and our hearts. We feed on that. We live like the Savior did above the world. We leave the world behind to reach the world. May we be faithful, Lord, to so live that it brings glory to the one who redeemed us. We ask in his name. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crashing our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch hats from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded what conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no God is realer, yeah. We can take any time in the scripture, what you get is a prominent picture. See his light shining right in the night, and it's bright in the might, and the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though, when he came for the lost that he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a short hold on him, fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean, the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was fought with a price. We got to hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is 
the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent, the name par excellence. Prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we of pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily. Apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments. The center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross. And compensated his life, death, and resurrection. Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all. Freedom from the effects of the fall. Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. Teaching our kids in the midst of chaos. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Popular Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Our culture is experiencing the moral chaos that's come from the sexual and gender revolutions. And you know what? The revolutionaries aren't done yet. They're utterly determined to capture the next generation through media, drag queen story hours, sex education and more. So what can parents do? Well, God has given you the responsibility of teaching your children morality. And that includes a sexual ethic that honors God and His Word. We can't assume our children are receiving this biblical teaching from the church or that they just know how Christians should think. And all this week, we're going to look at how to disciple them to think biblically about sexuality. Plan your trip to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter by visiting our website at AnswersRadio.com and discover more about thinking biblically at AnswersRadio.com. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land what's up stand up hands up does anybody love the son of man trust jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land what's up surprise no surprise i'm back in your section with jesus his death burial and resurrection more power than gravity his knowledge and strategies confound the academy bow to his majesty he paid sin salary took up blame on calvary those who love his name spread his fame is the policy all eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice that's prize i'm after christ and rise in the afterlife what did we forget about the holiness of god or something did we forget that god owes us a ride or something see the snake bruise when christ came to save dudes who hate truth the gospel is not fake news our debt is sin the gospel sweeter than it's ever been ain't nothing changed let us in we got the medicine it's still human emergency the serpent attack you think jesus can't say that's alternative facts Stand up, hands up, if you truly love the Son of Man, trust, 
truth is alive and its people he'll revive and its fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Listen to my composition Lots of rhythm but not traditional Kind of different But God's consistent No contradiction My proposition Through crucifixion He mocked and crippled His opposition It's not some fiction I'm spitting The son of God is risen And my incentive for godly living Is I'm forgiven Jesus came to unlock the prison And through the spirit He brings a new birth Like an obstetrician At times I listen A lot of Christian hip-hop is missing The proper vision It's my suspicion We drop the mission Not to this But the word of God Is it not sufficient The doctrine is That the gospel fixes our Shot condition, God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the, the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Filtering everything through God's Word. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. We often want to shelter our children from the evils of the world. And of course, there's a place for that. But the sexual and gender revolutionaries are determined to capture our children. You know, at some point, your kids will have to take a stand. Now, do they have the teaching they need to choose biblically? Part of discipling our children is making them aware of what the world teaches and then comparing it to scripture. You see, we want to train them while they're young to test everything against the absolute authority of God's word. So don't be afraid to talk, age appropriately of course, about homosexuality and transgenderism. Let your kids know what the world teaches. Find more teaching that affirms God's Word as our authority when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged and equipped at AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible 
So what's the key? This is Ken Ham, encouraging churches to start their thinking with all of God's Word. Many Christian parents want to teach a biblical worldview of morality to their children, but what's the key to success? Well, we shouldn't be just giving our children our opinion. We need to show them that morality is grounded in God's Word. God is our creator, judge, and lawgiver. He makes the rules, and we as his people must follow them out of love for him. You know, no matter the issue, point your children to God's Word. Help them see that the Bible isn't just a book full of stories. It's real history, and God intends for us to apply it no matter where or when we live. So pass along a biblical worldview that starts with teaching biblical authority. 
Discover answers to your questions about science, culture, and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive daily insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
gender, a social construct? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit the full-size Noah's Ark attraction in Northern Kentucky. Public schools across the US are increasingly pushing radical gender ideologies on young children. Now, as parents, we need to be equipping our children to think biblically about this vital issue. Today, it's popular to believe that gender is just a social construct, that your gender is whatever you want it to be, regardless of your biology. And that's why there are dozens of supposed genders out there. But scripture doesn't have this confusion. Genesis chapter 1 tells us we're created male and female. That's God's very good design. And in a world broken by sin, some people do struggle with this issue. And they deserve love and compassion. But we're created male and female. Read a full transcript of this episode or listen to it again when you visit AnswersRadio.com and discover answers to questions about culture and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. Glory of your name 
And what am I that you called me to your side And took this heart of stone and broke it open wide God's Word on Marriage. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. In 2015, we saw marriage redefined here in America to allow a legal homosexual union. Now, our children are growing up in a very different world from past generations. So how can we help them think biblically about issues like marriage? Well, we must start by teaching them what God's Word says. Marriage is not ultimately a social, government, or cultural institution. It's God's institution. So only God has the authority to define marriage. And he has very clearly defined it when he says, male and female, he created them. Marriage is a union limited by God to one man and one woman. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program or others like it at AnswersRadio.com.
This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine.
big question these days. May a Christian get a tattoo? Before I answer, let me just tell you, no, I don't have one. Having said that, let's see what the Bible says. From the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. That appears to be pretty straightforward. However, I would like to suggest to you the context of those markings and cuttings is pagan worship. Doing those activities to participate in some sort of pagan ceremony, I believe that is what is in view in that particular text. Having said that, I understand why some people would disagree. I would also suggest to you this would be a Levitical law fulfilled, abolished by Jesus. You could argue the principle carries forward. Again, I believe because of the context of pagan worship that that specific command wasn't about body art. That's what tattoos are, body art, not doing something to your body to please a false god. More Bible verses, 1 Corinthians 8, but take care that this Liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And Romans 14, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Why do we use those verses in considering body art tattoos? It's the issue of Christian liberty. You, I believe, have the liberty to get body art. The question is, should you? While I might have the liberty, are there other considerations like my testimony? What does it say to the world? Does it cause other Christians to stumble? Because if it does, because I love the brethren, I can easily give up and forego my liberty. A quote from John Marie. If Christ loved the weak believer to the extent of laying down his life for his salvation, how alien to the demands of this love is the refusal on the part of the strong to forego the use of a certain article of food or anything else, including tattoos, when the religious interests of the one for whom Christ died are thereby imperiled. In other words, if somebody... A, a group of people, even in your congregation or in the greater body, has an issue with tattoos thinking, yikes, that's what pagans do. Uh, there are places in Africa where that is strongly felt. Then the Christian should be willing to go, I don't need this because I love you. Let's take a look at some questions for your consideration. Number one, will a tattoo help or hinder your ability to witness to others? you got to figure that out. Number two, will the tattoo cause your brother to stumble? Number three, what is the primary purpose of the tattoo? Attracting attention? Is it to cause others to lust? Is it a vanity? Each and every Christian must answer those questions before you enter a tattoo parlor. Big question, may a Christian get body art? Short answer, tattoos are permissible but must be considered very thoughtfully, lovingly, and sacrificially. If you'd like more Wretched content and who visit Wretched.org and you will have Wretched coming out of your nose. And that's biblical. Thank <laughs> you.
just sentence for someone guilty of rape. Well, according to God's law, the sentence is death. In Deuteronomy 22, it is explained that if a man forces himself on another man's wife, this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Therefore, he should receive the death penalty. Many cultures today have become soft on the death sentence, even for murder. Such a judgment would be less likely for rapists. But even if civic government or other man-made institutions hesitate to do justice, the punishment for sexual assault or sexual depravity of any kind is still death. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, the Spirit says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Instead, they will be cast into hell. But even for sins like these, there is a Savior. Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, gave his life as an atoning sacrifice by dying on the cross for our sins. Even the most depraved man or woman can receive forgiveness. They should still face the consequences for their actions and let justice not be perverted. But salvation from eternal judgment is by faith in Jesus. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we understand the text. That's when we understand the text. Uh, also known as WWUTT on, on YouTube and check out the website www.utt.com. And thanks for listening to Tricky Tall Radio. I'm your host, Melissa Cantrell. And what we do now is play a song for you. This one's called. Kick it old school here on Truthy Tori. We kick it old school.
old school. That's one thing in a chicken old school. And that is go fishing net. You want to find out more about them? Go to gofishguys.com, G O F I S H G U I S dot C O. Gofishguys.com. Here on Tripicory. Big and contentious question, is drinking alcohol a sin? We must go to the Bible to see exactly what it says. Verse number one, Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. That's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Two thoughts from that one verse, drinking alcohol seems to be assumed, and yet, don't get drunk. Furthermore, God wants the Christian to be of sober mind, on the alert, ready for action, ready to give a defense. If we are getting fuzzy-minded, then we are not being ready-bodied Christians. Verse number two, Galatians 5, envy, drunkenness, there it is, I warned you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness clearly condemned, and the ongoing sin of drunkenness damnable. Verse number three. First Corinthians six, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, not chuck, will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear. It seems consuming alcohol in some way, shape, or form, and that's a debatable issue, is acceptable. Getting drunk? Absolutely not. Therefore, Christian, you have a very earnest responsibility to work through this very carefully. A quote from a dead guy. Charles Spurgeon, drunkenness is the devil's back door to hell and everything that is hellish. For he that once gives away his brains to drink is ready to be caught by Satan for anything. Hmm. What was he trying to say? Big implications, number one. A Christian should always think, could this cause my brother to stumble? Don't want to do that. Number two, the Christian should also think, will drinking affect my witness to unbelievers? Number three, drunkenness, it opens the door for all sorts of other sins. Just ask a lot of people who are currently sitting in rehab. A big question, can a Christian consume alcohol? Short answer, drinking alcohol without getting drunk, not a sin, but even then it should be considered very, very carefully. Would you please like, subscribe, or share this video so other people can enjoy this professional Christian content. Deuteronomy 22, 28-29 says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Whoa! So the Bible says a woman has to marry her rapist? No, that's not what's going on here. Ever heard of a shot?
shotgun wedding? It's a marriage arranged at the end of a father's shotgun to avoid the embarrassment of premarital sex between his daughter and some young dude who couldn't keep his pants in. This law is kind of like that. Some Bible translations use the word rape in this passage, but that's an inaccurate reading. Seizing a woman means the offending man took something that did not belong to him, another man's daughter. Violated does not always mean rape, even in English. It can simply mean the man dishonored the woman. The law obligates him to make an honest woman of her by marrying her, lest she become desolate, cursed, or executed. Deuteronomy means second law, a copy of the commands given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. This law in Exodus says the father can refuse to give his daughter to the young man. So this is not a law forcing a woman to marry her rapist. The law just said right before this, rape is worthy of death. Hebrews 13, 4 says, for marriage to be held in honor by all. Ask Jesus for forgiveness, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous when we understand the text. Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was As long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, or 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.